All right, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, a wonderful passage. Uh, I am continuing the uh, 1 Peter series that I started back in May, and so you'll see me uh, here, and then at the end and beginning of next year, I'll hopefully complete 1 Peter, Uh, and, and so this is the next passage in the process. I looked at this passage And I realized this is, uh, in fact, uh, as I looked at some of the commentaries, they said this is the hardest passage theologically in the New Testament. And I thought, well, I've seen some pretty hard passages. I'm not sure that I would say this is the hardest. But it certainly is a more difficult one and one that I had to wrestle with personally. The reason I had to wrestle with it personally is because people would look at this passage, they would go to this passage and say, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And so I was, I, I was struggling with that. How, do you, how does it seem to say that? How, how do I understand that in light of all the other scriptures that say salvation is in Jesus? It's faith in Jesus and it doesn't include baptism. Thief on the cross was not baptized and yet he was saved. And people say, well, yeah, he was personally forgiven by Jesus. Yeah, so am I. So I, it's no different. And so what does this passage mean? How does it help us? And so I want us to think about it, but I also want us to think about this very beginning opening phrase, for Christ also suffered. For Christ also suffered. The word for points us back in the passage. He's he's got an argument. He's he's saying, uh, he's he's building up to this point, and then he says, for Christ, and you're like, oh, what was he saying before? What was he talking about before? And then the word also also points us back to the passage before. So you look back at the verse before that. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he's talking about suffering when we do the right thing. Suffering for doing the righteous thing. Suffering for doing the right thing. Now, growing up, I was uh, not, not the best kid in my family. I was the kid about whom Solomon probably wrote in Proverbs, strike a fool and the wise will be instructed. (laughs) My brothers and sisters were the wise who were instructed as they watched me in my foolishness. And I look at that and I think, you know, we we look at this this, this passage and we expect when we do the wrong thing to suffer for it. But when we do the right thing, we expect to be praised for it. We expect that when we serve, we'll have somebody come along and go, uh, boy, a girl, way to go. Love what you're doing. When we love somebody, we expect somebody to love us back. When we do our job, we expect a well done, uh, a great job. Uh, I love what you're doing. Uh, uh, so proud of you. Uh, what you've done means a lot to me. That's what we expect, an encouragement And yet, when suffering happens and we're doing the right thing, we kind of go, God, what are you doing here? I'm doing the right thing. Why am I suffering? For Christ also suffered. You see, he's tying those two things together, our suffering and Christ's suffering. Suffering for doing the right thing. In fact, when you look at at Peter, his two books deal with suffering. If you're going through suffering, read 1 and 2 Peter. 1 Peter deals with suffering from the outside, from people around you. 2 Peter deals with suffering from false teachers and stuff that's going on inside uh, the the body in some cases. 
And so here he's dealing with suffering. He's talking about it. And you think, but when you go back and you say, for it is better to suffer, and I think better. I don't like the idea of better suffering. Uh, but he says, for, again. So it tied, you've got to go back in the, in the verse. Uh, go back and, and you look at the very next verse and you kind of go, it seems like it's part of an, a bigger idea starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, verse 14. So he's still talking about suffering for doing right. And so you back up a little bit more and you, you look in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 and in verse 19 and 20 especially, he says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Well, that was, what I, that was me growing up. But if when you do good and suffer for it, it, uh, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. So I'm called for suffering? I don't like that calling. I'm called to ministry? Oh yeah, great. Called to suffering? Not so, I don't love that. You notice that we don't, we don't talk about that kind of calling. Calling to suffering? We've been called to suffer. Why? Because we're doing the right thing. Suffering for righteousness' sake, because our Savior suffered for righteousness' sake. He, he was doing the right things. He was righteous himself. He had no sin in him. The only one in the whole world that has never sinned, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The rest of us, sinful. And you think about that and you realize... So, and Jesus said, if, if I suffer, you're going to suffer. In fact, uh, uh, pull that verse up. Uh, I, I, it says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we have three verses in a row that I want us to look at. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a blessing for, for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, there's a crown of righteousness and there's a reason why there's a crown, because suffering comes with righteousness, living rightly. I have a, uh, a cousin whose, whose son just got married. And uh, he and his uh, fiance uh, didn't move in together, didn't have uh, relations before they got married. And everybody at both of their jobs, both of where they worked, were giving them all sorts of grief. Why don't you just move in together? Why don't, and they were pressing them and they were pressuring them and they were, they were looking down on them because they didn't do that. And they were asking them, why are you living this way? And guess what? When a person asks you why and puts pressure on you, that's the perfect opportunity for the gospel. Because you say, well, let me tell you why. It's because of Jesus. And what he's done in my life and how he's transformed me and he's made me have a wonderful life and I would love for you to have that too. That's the opportunity. We see it as, oh, I'm being persecuted, but it's also great opportunity. I have some uh, dear, dear people uh, who I've, I've uh, gotten to know that are living in a persecuted country. I had the opportunity to get to know them a little bit and, and, after I, I, and I prayed for them and after I left them, they came to know Jesus as their Savior. And it, and, it, and it totally transformed them. I mean, they were excited about their faith and began to share their faith. And then I got a call just um, a few months ago from uh, a friend who said, um, 
they are under such persecution that we're, we're looking at maybe trying to get them out of the country. Can you give? And they needed $14,000. I was like, I don't have $14,000. I'm in the middle of a capital campaign. And I'm thinking, what's more important? And I'm just, I mean, all you can tell, I my mean, heart was just torn in both directions. And I thought, I can pray for them. And I, and I prayed, and I thought, Lord, you need to provide for them so that they can leave the country because they're getting such persecution and people that are against them. And the people that were against them, God answered the prayer differently than what I expected because those came to know Jesus as their Savior. And they're no longer under persecution from them. And I was just like, oh my goodness, that was not what I thought God was going to do. I thought he was going to provide 14,000 so they could leave the country. And instead, he provided so that they could stay and continue to be a witness for him where they're planted. Wow. Wow. I mean, that just blessed my heart to no end. If I just left you with that, that would hopefully leave your heart full to know and to watch and to think. We pray and we say, oh, well, all I can do is pray. We should never say that. Never say that. All I can do is pray. No, that is the most important thing that we do. That is the ministry. We pray and then all the ministry is, we're just cleaning up in and after prayer. Because God's already done the heavy lifting. He's already done the, the hard work. He's already done the transformation process. And we just trust him. We need to be those, when we look at scripture, understand, I want to live for righteousness sake. And then whatever I take, I take. Whatever suffering I get, whatever people say about me, they say. And I just need to live for him. There's a verse in Galatians 1.10. In Galatians 1.10, it's one that I memorized. And, and uh, I probably got in a Greg Buckles version because I've read it in so many different versions. I, I'm not, I don't remember exactly word perfect in one version. But basically it says, am I still trying to please men or God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I can't let people's thoughts about me or their persecution of me define who I am. He defines who I am, right? He's the one who says I am a child of God. He's the one that says that I'm forgiven. He's the one that de determines everything about me. And if I just believe what he said, I would not back down on righteousness because when we are treated unrighteously for things that we do, when we're doing righteous things, our tendency is, that's the last time I'll ever do that. That's the last time I'll ever spend time with that person because they treated me poorly. And what, it, what our tendency is, is to give in and stop doing the righteous thing or we kind of play it under the radar or whatever. It's like, no, I need to live for him. I need to do what he says, regardless of what anybody else thinks. I need to do righteousness. I need to live righteously. And that doesn't mean righteousness in the sense that I'm judgmental and that I'm harsh toward people. It means that I love them. It means that I forgive them. I had somebody very dear to me who criticized me for some things that, uh, in my past. And some of it they were right about. Some of it was unfair. And when they got done, I was angry. I mean, that just happened in the last year. I was angry at them. I didn't want to ever see them again. 
And yet I loved them and cared about them and I knew that wasn't the right response, but that was the feeling I had inside. And I could see how easy it would be for me to just give up on righteousness and say, well, that doesn't work. And say, no, I need to keep doing what's right. And one of the things that was right is I needed to forgive them and I needed to reach out to them. Even though everything in my being was screaming at me, don't do it. Stay away from them. Because of my hurt. And I reached out to them. And because I reached out to them, they asked for forgiveness for some of the things they said. And I asked for forgiveness for some of the things that I had done. And it, and it drew our hearts and knit our hearts together. We should never have in our vocabulary, I'll never do that again, or I'm not going to do righteousness again, or I'm not going to live. No, we forgive. And we live for him. Because we don't let our hurt define us. You can imagine those in the persecuted church, how if they let their hurt define them, they would have never led these other people to Christ. But because they, they refused to give in and refused to say, uh, I'm done, God blessed them in an incredible way. And why do we do it? For Christ also suffered. You know, I think it's interesting when you look at this whole section, I think this is really key. You see in chapter 2, you uh, suffer when you do well. In chapter 3, when you get down to uh, verse 14, suffer for righteousness' sake. In um, 17, suffer for doing good. For Christ also, in 18, for Christ also suffered. In this whole section of suffering for doing what's right. And this is another sermon for another time, but notice that wives and husbands is right in the middle of all of that. I mean, think about that. You do what's right and you suffer for it. Hmm. Is this a parenthesis? He just kind of goes, oh, by the way, let's talk about marriage for a little bit. Now let's go back to suffering. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think what happens in marriage is exactly what I described with me and this precious dear friend that we feel like walking away because they've said something to us and we haven't forgiven. There's a need for forgiveness, that we forgive the other person. It doesn't mean, forgiveness doesn't mean that we're walked on, but it does mean that we forgive. It does mean that we seek to be restored, but if it cannot be, and I know that, that in some cases in marriage, there's, there's, the, it, there's some situations where they just can't be resolved, and I understand that, I get that, and I'm, I know the pain of that. Not personally, thankfully, but I know it from dear people around me that have gone through some very difficult times. But I look at that and I think, I don't think Peter's changed subjects when he went into that. Because you can do what's righteous even in your own marriage and you suffer. How do we respond? That's the key. How do we respond? Well, first we, we go back to the gospel itself. That's why Peter, I think, goes to the gospel. This fits. The gospel is part of the solution. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Not many times. The author of Hebrews tells us that he didn't suffer multiple times. He suffered once. He wasn't like the high priest who one time, he goes in every single year and offers for himself and then he offers for the nation. Jesus never needed to offer for himself. He's the righteous one. 
And he didn't do it multiple times every year. He did it once. He died once for all sin for all time. Now think about your own Christian life. This was something I remember struggling with as a young believer. And you can put that chart up, the first one. I was, I was concerned about, because somebody had said, well, you know, you, uh, Christ covered all your sins up to the point that you received Jesus. And then you're responsible after that for all the sins that you commit after. You've got to work out your salvation. And I was like, is that right? And I was wrestling with that. And of course, my first thought is, man, I accepted Christ too soon in my life. <laughs> but then I, the answer is in the next slide. That every one of my sins were future when Christ died. He covered all my sins. Even before I accepted Christ. Even before I was ever born. He died for all sin, for all time. For all people, and when I received Jesus, that applied to me. And he covered all my sins. And working out my salvation is, is now I live out what he has already done in my life. I'm not living out my salvation in order to gain salvation. I'm living out the salvation I already have. And it's becoming part of my life. And so when I look at that, I realize he's not giving the gospel here because he says, oh, maybe you're not a believer at this point. He's saying the gospel not only is applicable to the beginning of your Christian walk, it's every day you live out the gospel. Every day we trust the Lord for his work that he did on the cross to be applied to my life now. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies holy and living sacrifices unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. I'm worshiping God every day when I obey him. Not when I just sing about him for 30 minutes once a week, but whenever I'm living my whole life and when I come to worship him and sing to him, that's just an overflow of a full cup of worship. Because I'm living for him and I'm living by his power and by his grace. I couldn't even live the Christian life without him. He died once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's all the rest of us. For all of sin. That, and that gives the reason why he did that, that he might bring us to God. It's not about making me more religious. We don't need more religious people in the world. We need people who know Jesus. When we know Jesus, that changes our lives. That makes us wholly different. And he brings us to him so that we may know him. That's why Paul, at the end of his life, in the book of Philippians, when he's under, in prison in Rome, he's saying that I might know him. You're going, what? You're just now getting to know him? No, it's a lifelong process. All his life, he wanted to know Jesus. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. It is these that tell of me. It's to get to know Jesus. That's why we study the word, to know him, to get close to him, to be near to him. And when we're near to him, we want to do what he asks us to do. Uh, obedience becomes just a, 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 almost an afterthought because we're knowing him. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, he died and he rose again. Now, this next phrase is problematic. 
It says, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And you kind of look at that and go, what? What is he talking about here? And he goes on to say, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And you ask yourself a number of questions. What did he proclaim? Who did he proclaim it to? And where was he when he proclaimed it? There's a lot of different answers to that theologically. And I don't, I don't think Peter gave us this so that we would spend the rest of our time trying to figure that one out. I mean, there are some that would say that, that he went to Hades and that he proclaimed there to the demons. Some say he went to Hades and proclaimed to the people who had lived during Noah's day and proclaimed victory of the gospel. There's so many different answers to what this is. Some would say it was the pre-incarnate Christ that proclaimed to the people actually during the time of Noah. I don't know which one it is. The passage doesn't tell us. One day I'll, when, I, when I go to be in, with the Lord, I'm going to ask Peter, what did you mean by this? You said Paul's writings were hard to understand. I, I think you got some pretty tough ones yourself. But here's what we do know. We don't, do know that from the passage, the context is key. It's always key to understand the context. It's talking about God's patience, when God's patience waited. We do know that it was, had something to do with the days of Noah. There was a flood then, right? Remember that? The ark was being prepared so that it was about, the ark is important to the process. Eight persons were saved through the water. Then he goes to the very next. So go hold those thoughts. Those are kind of, let's move forward a little bit. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's the, that's the difficult phrase. That was the difficult phrase for me as I was struggling with this. The word corresponds, and, and you may have a different word there, baptism, which corresponds to this. The word corresponds is the word uh, in, in the Greek, antitupos, which we get our word antitype. So there's a type and an antitype. A type is a foreshadowing of something that's coming after. So somehow Noah's flood was a foreshadowing of baptism. And so that's the comparison that Peter's making here. And it says, corresponding to this, what is this referring back to? Some would say it's referring back to the water. And so there's the cleansing water, and so there's the cleansing water of baptism. But the water in Noah's day was not cleansing. It was judgment. And I think the water in baptism, we think about coming out of the water and now we're clean in Christ. But the reality is when you come out of the water, when you go into the water, we say buried with him in baptism. So it's a picture of the waters of judgment that we're being buried, that we've died and we've been buried with him. And so it still pictures waters of judgment. So it's really not the picturing the waters of judgment. It's not this idea of cleansing because Peter says not the removal of dirt from the body. He's not talking about cleansing and they would have thought in their minds, the Jews in that day would have thought ceremonial cleansing. That baptism, because they had these what called mikvahs and the mikvah was this body, this little pool of water and they would walk down in it and come out of it so they'd be ceremonially clean for different activities, especially worship in the temple. And there are a whole lot of mikvahs that were in front of the, the temple area. And in fact, I believe that the early disciples, the first 3,000, were baptized in those. And they weren't just being ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed. 
They were being baptized. They were, they were not being saved at that moment. They were already saved. They were being baptized. Not to remove the dirt. And this says, the ESV says, but an appeal to God. I noticed in the reading this morning, it was in, out of the NIV, it says a pledge to God. So which one's right? Appeal sounds like a prayer. A pledge sounds totally different. The word that's translated appeal in the ESV could be translated one of those two ways. And obviously one translation made one choice, another translation made the other. And you'll have to decide for yourself. But I, as I wrestled with it, I realized it's a pledge. A pledge to God of a good conscience. And he's saying basically what Paul said in, in Romans 6. When he said, raised to walk in newness of life. That's a pledge that I'm going to live now for Jesus. And I think that Peter's saying the same thing, that it's not ceremonial, it's a pledge when you come out that you're going to walk with Jesus the rest of your life. It's a lordship decision in a sense. You are my Lord and I'm going to live for you and I'm going to start. Why was he talking to persecuted Christians about baptism? Because if you've ever been around people in a persecuted situation... Baptism is a big deal. You get baptized, you get ostracized from your family. You get baptized, you can be put to death. If you get baptized, in some countries, they take away some of your rights as a citizen of that region. Baptism is a big deal. And you can imagine that in a persecuted situation, that they're thinking, do I still get baptized? Or do I just kind of leave that thing off. And Peter's telling them, no, I want you to get baptized because you're making a pledge of this good conscience that you're choosing the right, even though you're probably going to suffer for it when you get baptized. I think that was Peter's point here. I want you to get baptized so that you can identify with Christ, so that you can identify with his sufferings, so that you can identify with who he is. And you, yes, you probably will be persecuted for it, but you need, in order to keep this good conscience, you need to, you need to do this. But listen to this. You're not on your own. Because you're doing this through the resurrection of Jesus, so you're only doing it through his resurrection and you're only doing it through him who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You have all power and all authority in heaven and earth. And know that when you're getting baptized, it's a big deal, but you got all the power of Christ working for you. Wow. We would miss that point if we get lost in some of the details, but when you begin to look and you see what, what Peter's point is, you realize it really goes back to just the simple gospel message. And baptism is simply a step of obedience. And that it's identifying with Christ, and it's a pledge, I will live for you. I am raised now to walk in newness of life. Maybe some of you here need verse 18. You haven't Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And how do I know? Because it doesn't use the word faith. Well, you go back to the very beginning of the book. Back in chapter 1. Who says that he talks, he talks about, uh, he says, uh, Blessed be the God, verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And then I'm going to skip down a little bit. You can read uh, the the in-between stuff, but in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he started the book that way, Salvation comes by believing on Jesus. It's the gospel. If you've never responded to Jesus, maybe you didn't know you needed to. That's what happened to me. I didn't know that I I needed a response. I thought if you you would ask me, are you a Christian? I would have said, yeah. I go to church occasionally. I believe that there is a God. But somebody asked me, do you have a personal relationship with God? And I went, what? What? I didn't even know what that was. And it took about three weeks of almost daily conversations with some of these guys and looking through the scriptures together. And I realized I'd never taken that step of just simply receiving Christ as my Savior. And so I took that step. Maybe you're here today and you haven't taken that step. I would encourage you, take that step. Or talk to somebody about it. Maybe do like me. If you've got some questions, ask them. We're not asking you to make a step without knowledge, come talk to us. Come talk to me. But maybe you're someone that needs to be baptized. You've never been baptized. Take that step. Identify publicly with Jesus Christ. Don't let the pressure that you feel inside. If you're an introvert, I know you don't want to be in front of everybody. Don't want to have a video, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Take the step. Christ simply asks us to do it. Identify with him. Invite some people over that they see that process. Make it a celebration, because it is. But let's be people who walk with Jesus, that we have pledged ourselves, that we will faithfully do what he asks us to do, that we will live in righteousness no matter what people do, no matter how they treat us, we do the right thing, we know that we're going to suffer for it. Jesus said it was going to happen. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's going to happen. It happens. Live for him. And you will be blessed in ways that you cannot have ever imagine. You'll see lives transformed. I think about uh, the Texas Rangers winning the World Series. Even as I say that, it's like i got to pinch myself. Did, I, did that really happen? Yeah, it did. And I think about a guy that almost didn't make the World Series. He was called up, and, and I think they had to have a, a, a guy go on IER for him to even be able to play in the World Series. His name is Evan Carter, and he has a shirt that he wore. He wore it when he first started uh, uh, with the Rangers. He wore it underneath his, his, uh, his jersey, I think, and it just simply says, Jesus won. I love that. I mean, we sang, we sang in that one of those songs that uh, the, the darkness had won. No, Jesus won, right? We thought darkness had won. Jesus won. And here's a guy, Evan Carter, who now is, God is put up on a stage where he's able to, to communicate his faith in Jesus. And he's just simply being obedient. I know he's probably received some, some harsh emails or whatever because of that shirt. But he's willing to stand up. He's willing to speak up. And I love that about him. May we be like that. Those who simply follow Jesus, who simply show up. I've gone to different places in the world where I I thought, I've just showed up. I don't know what I'm supposed to do while I'm here. 
and I'm just showing up and then I watch God work. Let's just show up. Let's do what God is asking us to do. And yeah, there's going to be some hard things that come with it, but there's going to be some great blessing that will, that will knock your socks off, that will be beyond anything that you've ever imagined because you'll see the hand of God that you were missing all along because you weren't looking, you weren't watching, you weren't praying for that to happen. Because when you start getting involved and you start seeing difficult things, you also see blessing and it's great and it's, it's wonderful. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love and grace towards us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he took our place, a substitutionary atonement. He took our place, that little word for. Lord, that is so powerful. Thank you for dying in our place and taking the punishment for our sin and then giving us eternal life and righteousness and the Holy Spirit and so many other things that you have given us freely as a gift. Lord, may we who have been brought to God spend the rest of our life getting to know you. That we would want every day to know you a little bit more and that we would know you through reading your word, but we would know you through living it out and seeing you work because you're actively working in our world. Lord, may we be a part of that. Lord, I pray for those who are, that may have been like me that, that had just never taken that step. Lord, if they're here today, I pray that they'd take that step and just say, Lord Jesus, I receive you now into my life. I believe in you. And I want that salvation that you offer and I ask for it now. And I put my faith in you. Lord, I pray that for those who may have never been baptized and need to take that step, Lord, it's just simply a step of obedience. You ask us to do it. It doesn't save us, but it is something as as an early step that we should take in our Christian walk. Lord, I pray that they would take that step. Lord, I pray that you would transform our lives in such a way that people see Jesus. They see an incredible love that they can't explain. They see forgiveness at times when they don't expect it. They see us living for you. I pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world, Father, who are facing even more than we face. We receive a raised eyebrow, a little bit of pressure. They're worried about losing their lives. Lord, I pray for them. Protect them. Keep them safe. Use them, Father, as a testimony of your grace. But Lord, I pray that you would use us here. Our world needs Jesus. Our world here needs you. Our country needs you. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who testify of you, who live for you, and who love and forgive in a way that would transform those around us. Lord, transform us, change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.